Addict that is. Welcome to Problem Addict, a weekly podcast about notoriously problematic pop culture icons from our favorite reality TV shows past and present, music videos, movies, and everything in between. Hey, all you problematics. It's Eugene, the host of Problematic Pod. I want to thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. And let's get started without any further ado. Hey, problematics. Last week was a little rough. I had to take a little bit of a, a little bit of a break. I uh, I sat in the clubhouse room. Are you, are you on the clubhouse app? So I sat in the clubhouse room for about three hours last Monday and uh, listened to Asian American and Pacific Islander women. I respect and admire talk talk about confronting racism and it just like wiped me out do you know about lash laws ever wonder why some states like oregon are just like so white i suggest you read up on lash laws shout out to jamie chung from uh san diego real world for bringing it up i'm also just like upset at like the world right now i think there's a lot that people are just glossing over and I had to take a pause for my podcast because I just didn't have the words to express the rage I was feeling last week. I sat in the clubhouse for three hours last Monday just trying to compose myself listening to women that I respect, I admire, talk about racism and how Like, talk about the fear that they felt. And it it broke me. It just broke me. And knowing that this isn't the end just makes it so much harder to feel optimistic. As a biracial, black, Asian, gay man, I'm just feeling so many things right now. A lot of things I haven't really felt since like 92, 93 maybe, since like the LA riots, that back then I guess I was four, like 13, 14, and now I'm like in my 40s, and what a change. Like, it's, it's strange thinking that not much has changed <laughs> in those decades, um, and how I've sort of had to repress a lot of those feelings I felt originally in the 90s uh, about race, identity, and just have all of them flooding back um, when I basically hit midlife. And not much has changed in... um, Not much has changed, period, actually. At all. Anyway. So because of the heavy subject matter going on around us, I wanted something light. I wanted something a little bit uplifting. And And then I ended up somehow on the Woody Allen, Dylan Farrow documentary, of all things. Uh, Alan versus Pharaoh, which was a great documentary. I learned so much, but I, I hated the title. I hated saying Alan versus Pharaoh. I think Woody Allen should just be removed from it completely. Should be called like the Dylan Pharaoh story or something along those lines. Uh, I won't use um, that man's name again. I thought the story was so impactful, so, so brutal that it was very uncomfortable to watch. Um, but if you're a trauma survivor, a 
a person that has suffered at the, the hands of someone that was supposed to love you and take care of you, act like a parent. I think the, the resounding message is that you can heal yourself, but it takes time. I love the relationship between her and her husband and their daughter. I thought that was very, it gave a sense of hope which is really important to survivors. And um, I recommend it. I The four parts, I watched all four parts in basically one day. Uh, lots of trigger warnings if you are um, a survivor. But it was, it's a story that needed to be told. Uh, and I'm glad that HBO Max and... Um, I'm glad they aired it. It's, yeah. And and another surprising thing is that I remember being like a young Korean boy uh, when this whole like story broke and how my the Korean side of my family was so anti-Sunni. Like, oh, like not a single nice thing was ever said about Sunni Previn um, amongst my, like the Korean side of my family. And I wonder if that was... If that happened like across other families, like Korean American families were never on her side. I don't recall if they were on um, her husband's, her current husband's side, but it was sort of like this girl were like disavowing her Koreanness because she's done this heinous thing, and it's it's really like weird or um, interesting to think back on it, like. 30, 40 years, uh, maybe not 40 years, like 30 years later, um, and see just the sort of like spite and hate that she got um, for doing this unfathomable thing of marrying your mother's partner. But anyway, I, I highly recommend um, the documentary about uh, Dylan Farrow on HBO Max. Go check it out. And then I watched Beautiful Thing. I love Beautiful Thing. It brought back so many memories of just, you know, coming out of the closet, falling in love for the first time. Like, that first touch <laughs> means so much when you're in the closet. Because it, it, it almost feels like acceptance, you know? When, like, when that boy you've, you've had that crush on, like, puts his hand on you, it's... Yeah. Um, I love that movie. It's it's a great movie, and I was right. It is written by Jonathan Harvey, <laughs> um, and there it, it's it just brings back so many good memories for me personally. I think it's better than like Love Simon or any of these new coming of age coming out stories that Hollywood's uh, been shoving down our throats the last few years. I think there's a place for all of them, but. To me, Beautiful Thing is just, it's its a perfect movie. It's a perfect movie. And then I realized um, I still wear the glasses that, like I wear a pair of glasses that the pair that Jamie wears when he's reading. And I was like, wait, those look like the glasses I'm currently wearing. And I was like, these things from my childhood just have a lasting impact. <laughs> Obviously, this podcast is called Problem Addict. And I think we can all agree that Bravo probably amongst all the sort of mainstream uh, cable channels, 
has the highest percentage of problematic people. However, there are other podcasts, great podcasts that I listen to, have been listening to for years now, that have a great understanding and give you Bravo content to an extent that I don't feel like I can because I hate watch Bravo. And the way I hate watch Bravo, I can't find, well, it's hard, particularly on the Dallas cast, to find any good or lightness, any positivity um, when I'm discussing these problematic characters. And to be honest, there's really only one non-problematic person uh, Dr. Tiffany Moon, on the Dallas cast. I can't wait. It's Thursday. Um, Top Chef begins. Top Chef Portland. I'm super excited about that because Top Chef is like one of my favorite shows. <laughs> uh, Top Chef is just one of those shows where like talent, I think, takes talent and like ability. Um, I love that show. I some some of my favorite reality contestants have been on that have come from Top Chef. And I've had the pleasure and privilege and joy of dining at some of their restaurants and uh, sampled some of their food. And these people are truly innovative, great at what they do, and just want to like share their gift. And I think that's a really important part of why I like uh, Top Chef on Bravo um, and why I don't like a lot of other shows on Bravo. I think... I think it's getting more difficult for me to separate like my personal feelings, uh, how entertaining these characters are, these housewives, um, and these people are just trash. They're such trash, and I just can't stick up for, defend, or I, I just, I, I don't want to. Like, there isn't a single person. Uh, I mean, I love New York. I th Well, I love New York with, like, the asterisk mark that says, I don't know why everyone is so, like, in love with Aaliyah. I just I don't understand it. Like, she she's proud of the fact she didn't vote. Like, fuck her. Ramona Singer is, the, is like, an awful person and is probably my least favorite housewife of all time but I do understand that she is fascinating to watch on television. But we should not reward her for being awful by continuing to tune in. That's, that's like an inner conflict inside of me that I just can't... I, I don't like thinking about it. And I think I've maybe only liked Ramona like once. And then she just... Uh. Um, let's see, who else is there? Uh, I'm Luann is kind of whatever. She's around. Um... Fun fact, <laughs> when my husband proposed to me, we went to go see Luann. The Countess Luann had a show afterwards, and we went to go see that. So on my first night of being a engaged man, my engagement, I, um, me and my fiancé went to go see Luann perform <laughs> in a sold-out theater that was nowhere near sold out. Yeah. <laughs> I've always hated Bethany. I think she is an awful human being. Um, I didn't mind Carol. I really didn't mind Heather, but I also never really watched a full Heather season, I'm pretty sure. Uh, there are some gaps in my Housewives history. I think I've never watched a season after the second season of New Jersey until maybe like season nine. 
you know what I did? I took like a break from Jersey. And then when I started back on Jersey, it was like Soggy Flocker was there. And I was just like, who's this woman? She's awful. She's crazy. Like legitimately crazy. Uh, Dolores, I don't mind. Um, I think the relationship she has with her ex-husband, Frank, is ridiculous. But I do love seeing Frankie on screen. He reminds me of every beefy guy in New Jersey I had a crush on. Yeah, he just does. Um, and he ha he's like apparently has a brain, too, which is like such a turn-on. Like, he's smart. That's hot. I enjoy watching Dolores, but I feel like Dolores is better off on her own show with Frank by themselves, uh, like doing re uh, doing renos across, you know, Bergen County or Passaic County. Uh, shout out to New Jersey. I've never liked Teresa. I think she's an idiot. And I'm sure, I mean, I bet you can tell by now stupid people just annoy me. I used to like Jackie. Melissa's like a non-entity. Um, and I don't know why people go crazy over Joe Gorka. He's... Uh, Jen Aiden, I never I'm coming around on her, I think like everyone is uh, I think she is truly an awful person But she's entertaining I won't cover all Bravo content I just don't have it in me For my self-care I just can't talk about these women And I know like how like crazy some of these stands are like, I don't want to say something and then, like, upset someone. And then, like, someone, like, like a troll comes at me because I said, like, gave my opinion about a housewife. So what I will do is I will definitely talk about Bravo when Top Chef starts. Um, maybe when regular, like, OG Below Deck starts again. I have no interest in talking about these sailing yacht numbskulls, uh, especially Gary. Oh, he's fucking stupid. But anyway, so I will get back. I will... I will discuss Bravo when I'm ready to discuss Bravo, and I think that will be when Top Chef launches, because I love that show. And I want to do, like, Bravo that I enjoy watching, not Bravo that I hate watch. So I will never, uh, unless something radical happens, I will probably never cover a Housewives. Who am I kidding? I'll probably cover New York, because it's home. Married to Medicine. I love that show. Check it out. It's it's so good. It is so good. I don't know why more people don't watch it. Uh, the husbands take part. The kids are, take part. It's it's great. Um, Atlanta. One of my favorites. I love that show. I think I think a season with like sixteen friends of is, is amazing. Um, Summer House. I kind of. I, I never watched, like, the first four seasons of Summer House, but now I'm, like, into Summer House, except I can't stand Hannah. I'll just go out and say that. Below Deck. I love Below Deck. Below Deck is a great, fun show to watch. Below Deck Med, not so much. Below Deck Sailing Yacht, yawn. But I also didn't want to discuss Below Deck because those people are insufferable. I, I'm, I, I'm not talking about, like, the deckhands or the stews i'm talking about like the charter guests <laughs> it was just a sad crazy below deck season and i didn't feel like i wanted to devote any time to watching uh captain lee's grief or his injury or um a season without kate it was just weird it felt wrong so yeah 
we're going to talk about Promising Young Woman. This was a movie I was really excited after I saw the trailer. Gosh, maybe even during Parasite, like last year? Or I can't remember the last movie I actually saw in a theater. theater. And then we had like The Long Wait. And um, I, to be honest, I haven't really seen a lot of Carrie Mulligan's work. I've seen her in Drive with Ryan Gosling. And I think that's really the only thing I've seen her in. It's a good film. I don't think it's a great film. I think on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd probably put it firmly at like the 8.5. I'd give it maybe like a low 9. I've only watched it once. I watched it last night, as a matter of fact. And I started it relatively late. It was like around 11 p.m. when I started. And then around a little after midnight, I was like, oh, I'm not sure if I like this movie. Um, but I did finish it. I finished it all in one one sitting. And I'll probably watch it again. Um just to like with like a fresh set of eyes so promising young woman is the directorial and screenwriting debut of emerald fennel she's an english uh actor director screenwriter um she's also best known for ruining season two of killing eve and i'm only slightly joking when i say that do you remember how like everyone was talking about killing eve season one and then like like basic people were talking about killing even season two and three <laughs> um there's just something about that show that after phoebe waller bridge like left as the showrunner it it sort of um eliminated sandra o <laughs> eve's portrayal of like hurt and grief and uh emotional like turmoil and it just really sort of focused it centered itself around Villanelle, who's maybe a good character, but the show's called Killing Eve. And it's not lost on me that the show is no longer about Eve. It's about Villanelle. Anyway. The movie is good, but I find it flawed. I can recommend this movie, but I don't think it deserves... Well... In a year where we haven't seen a lot of films in theaters, I guess this film is important, but I think this film could be improved on. I'm afraid the thing that stuck with me the most after my first watch of this movie is the soundtrack. The score, the soundtrack, it's great. It will stay with you afterwards. Obviously, it's not the only thing that will stay with you. But the soundtrack does, like, really exciting things. It like puts you in this mood where you think you know what to expect and because it's 79 degrees outside in Brooklyn today you're gonna hear a lot of noise sorry audience the soundtrack is amazing the the, the song choices I think are really clever and used for maximum impact um, promising young woman could be considered I think it's broadly considered like a revenge flick but that's too broad of a description, I feel. It's part, I hate to say it, it's like a dark comedy, but it's also like a tragic romantic drama or a tragic rom-com, if I can just like use that term. Um, or it's like a date night movie turned on its head. I think after the first watch, I liked Carrie Mulligan's performance, but I wasn't blown away by it. I think she was an interesting choice to cast, but I don't think she was outstanding. 
I'm almost certain she'll get like an Oscar nom. Did she get an Oscar nom? Those came out already, didn't they? Jeez. Um, but I feel like there just needs to be a little bit more background on her. She seems very one-dimensional in this role after the first time I watched this movie. We start the film with her. She looks kind of like a sales associate at an expensive European designer boutique. Um, there's something about like the way her hair is pulled back, the, the bangs, um, her like white blouse and black suit from like the wide shot. She looks like she could be like working at, I don't know. I mean, the, the European designer that I used to work for like had a very specific lip color that all the associates had to wear. So I know she doesn't work there. But it just reminded me of, oh, maybe she's like a um, like a fancy sales associate at, you know, like a very expensive store. And this is how she lets loose. Um, but then you get to the close-up after that wide shot. And she basically, like, looks like any normal girl at the mall. And then you start to look closely at her face, closer at her face. And then I start to see that Carrie Mulligan kind of looks like Britney Spears. Anyway, um, one of my favorite songs starts playing To Become One by the Spice Girls. Do you guys remember that song? Do you guys remember like actually paying attention to the lyrics of that song? That song is so H-word horny. That song is so horny. Like they talk about like, you know, like putting condoms on. <laughs> Guys, two become one. Do you get it? Like, that song is all about sex. So we get um, our character Jerry, played by Adam Brody. He takes her home. But I knew I kind of knew he wouldn't die. Not after that movie, Ready or Not. I, I saw that movie on a plane. I loved it. Um, I just knew that he probably wouldn't die, like, in two big movies back to back or however many years they were apart I just didn't feel like Carrie Mulligan's character Cassie is not doing these things to kill people even though that's what they're trying to uh, imply in the trailers which I think upset a lot of people it's she's doing it for like a psychological warfare um, end result as opposed to like death she's not killing anyone okay I know enough about the male gaze but I don't know anything really about the female gaze. So I'd love to sort of see what the female gaze in this movie shows the audience, right? Like, I know that there's that one scene, I'm jumping ahead now, but like when she's sort of pouring alcohol uh, dressed as like the stripper nurse, she's like, it's from her point of view. Like she's standing above these men that are on their knees with their mouths open. It's a very sort of vulnerable position for them to be in. Um, I'd like to sort of explore that a little bit more, but maybe after the second time I watch this, I can sort of uh, answer that question on my own. So they're basically like making out at uh, Adam Brody's apartment, and then she asks, what are you doing? What are you doing? She's basically like sloppy drunk or acting like she's sloppy drunk. What are you doing? Wait. And then this great sort of It's Raining Men cover like pops in, and it's a, it's such a nice choice. It's it like really sets you for like the tone of this movie which changes quite a bit and i think maybe that's what i was left really unsatisfied with this movie is this movie feels like four different movies sort of stitched into one longer narrative 
And I think maybe as a six-part miniseries, this would have been like great. Um, maybe even like a four-part miniseries. I feel like the tone of this movie shifts so much that you don't know whether you're sitting through a thriller, a erotic, um, uh, an erotic thriller, or a straight-up romantic comedy. I mean, there is like a meet cute setup <laughs> between uh, Bo Burnham's character Ryan and. Uh, Carrie Mulligan's character Cassie that feels like oh this is like the start of any sort of other rom-com in a coffee shop with of course you know like the co-worker there it just seems like very we've seen it we know that narrative but then there's also like this dark twisted thriller almost horror movie like cabin in the woods feel it it's but it's also like a comedy because there are some real laughs in this so I think the tone might just be a little jarring if you're expecting like one sort of genre don't expect that you won't get it I would love to have been in a movie theater watching this movie with like a large audience pre-covid of course while the it's raining men cover starts like can you just imagine what kind of feeling that would be that collective like audience gasp of oh wow this is like really exciting and fun and not what we were expecting, um, kind of like what happened in Scream 2 when Jada, <laughs> spoiler alert, when Jada gets when Jada Pinkett gets killed in the beginning of Scream 2 sitting next to Omar Epps. Like, I love that. It's, I was in a movie theater. Actually, I was in college. I was at like a screening of Scream 2 with like the Black Student League, and it was the most fun I'd ever had at a movie in my entire life. When that, when that, it was, it was epic. I loved it. But we don't see the results of what happened that night with Adam Brody and Carrie Mulligan. Like, she sort of, like, does, I guess, the walk of shame. But there's not enough red on her for it to be blood. <laughs> it's ketchup from the hot dog. And does she look like the type of person to eat a hot dog? The hot dog is phallic, so obviously it's like she's basically eating a dick, guys. <laughs> Use your imagination. So I feel like this probably is not Southern California. I don't think girls in southern california after they hook up i mean i'm sure they do but it's highly unlikely uh, it's hard to pinpoint a location where this movie takes place there's a a scene later on i'm jumping ahead again where uh she uh carrie mulligan cassie claims that she's doing she's like a makeup artist she's a lost makeup artist looking for like this boy band i'm like where do boy bands shoot their videos besides la like i can't imagine where she would be um so, but I think the location's not really important because this movie could take place really anywhere and the story would still have the same impact. I'd also like to know a little bit more about her mental state. Um, in like the first, say, 20 minutes, we find out that Cassie is living at home with her parents. Uh, is she unable to move? Is she trying to save up some money? Is she depressed? Is she living this like insular life where she doesn't want to like or she keeps herself isolated, not, you know, like exploring the rest of the world. She has no friends. She has no co-workers besides Laverne Cox, who is so underutilized. It's, I don't even know why she took this role. I'm really, it, I don't even want to get into like that, but it just seems like Laverne Cox's character could have been played by anyone or they could have just written her out. And it seems very, I don't know, it's like the only the only black person in this movie is like this magical like 
guardian coworker slash boss that doesn't really do anything. Like they spend a considerable amount of time with each other, but it also seems like they know nothing about each other. So why is she sort of like shoehorned into this script? Um, she she's basically like wasted in this role. I do realize that after I watch the movie, it's I can see that she's she's she can't or she's unable to let go of the past. Cassie is. It see it seeps into her everyday life and becomes like she becomes consumed by her past. She can't escape it. It's <laughs> it's spoiler alert. It's smothering. Um, she becomes obsessed, and it's not with the idea of justice that she's obsessed with. She's just sort of obsessed with righting the wrongs that happened to her friend Nina. Uh, she's obsessed with shaming men she's obsessed with making things right or she's i guess addicted to making things right and she's sort of trying to fix these things for her dead friend nina she's writing these wrongs she's not wanting to seek what we consider justice it's basically like men are trash but we all knew this i mean i learned this at a very young age and i don't think it's a huge discovery it's it's, it doesn't tell us more that it doesn't tell us anything that we need. Oh, actually, maybe it does. Maybe we just are under this false impression that men that men that treat other people like trash, they're obviously trash. But people that have are, that are multifaceted have you know good qualities that don't do anything outrageously racist or sexist or anti-feminist. What, what about them? Like. How about we point a finger at them and investigate and examine their actions, their behaviors, their enabling behaviors? And I think that's a very interesting question this movie asks. It's sort of like this is her way of dealing with the trauma that she's living with, even though the trauma didn't necessarily happen to her. She was adjacent to the trauma because this happened to her friend Nina. For a while, I was like really confused about her age in this movie, but they do address it. There's there's a scene where she celebrates her 30th birthday party. Her parents, played by Jennifer Coolidge, who is probably, like, so against type. <laughs> uh, and Clancy Brown, who I've never really seen, like, not play a bad guy. <laughs> they buy her a present for her 30th birthday, and it's kind of sweet. But it's also, like, a pink suitcase. And they're like, they're just like, get the fuck out of the house. You're 30 now. Leave. I also noticed that Carrie Mulligan's ax, uh, Irish accent, I guess, uh, kind of slips through at least twice. Like, there's this one point where she says girl, and it, it's, it's unlike any other American English girl I've heard. It's, hmm. Why does she mark a tick in her notebook and then flip, like, in the back of her book, and then flip to the front of her notebook to write the victim's name? That part I don't quite understand. I mean, I get it from like a cinematic point uh, standpoint where you don't want to like write someone's name in the front of the book and then flip to the back and then just like put like a straight line. <laughs> That's not like exciting or it doesn't, you know, like it's not fulfilling. But it's also kind of weird where if I was committing these acts of violence or maybe not even violence, like of, of confronting these men for their predatory behavior... Why would I put a tick at the back of my journal, flip to the front of the book, and then write their name down? My brain doesn't process that logically. I would obviously write the name down first at the front of the book and probably not even do the tick mark, right? 
I don't know. It also takes us a while to realize that she's a med school dropout. Um, so she's a barista. Barista? So she's works. she works at this coffee shop. Her boss is Laverne Cox. Uh, her character's name is Gail, I believe. So she's a co- high school... I'm sorry. So she's a med school dropout that returns back home and works in a coffee shop. Okay, so that leads me to believe that she's not very happy. There's a lot of stuff going on in her life. Um... And she's not very ambitious. I think one of the most interesting parts of this film is where uh, she gets picked up by uh, Sam Richardson. who uh, uh, What was his name in Veep? I forget. Um, but she's basically, she's blown off her dinner date with Ryan, played by Bo Burnham. She's going out to the bar to like seek a victim. And she meets this guy in a fedora and she's acting so drunk and she's dressed completely differently. Like she's like, her hair's in a ponytail. She's wearing like a lot of makeup. Um, her dress is very revealing and short. I believe she has like, like uh, strappy like stiletto heels on. And as she's walking out of the bar with this guy, her boyfriend or like this guy that she's sort of seeing sees her. And she has to like kind of be like, oh, this isn't what it really looks like. And I think her acting here is so good. She also admits that there are other women that do the exact same thing that she's doing. They act drunk and then they sort of get their revenge. She's sort she's sort of this she's part of this like subculture of like guardian angels. <laughs> uh, which I think is a really interesting like component of this film that could have been explored more. Like I would love to see other women doing this. Um, and I think it would have made, well, I don't know if it would have made a better movie. I want to talk about Bo Burnham a little bit. Uh, his Ryan is, his character Ryan kind of seals the show. He's a very interesting leading man. You almost want to root for him. He's cheerful. He deals with her attitude and negativity in like a really sort of easy way. He knows how to do all the right things. He says all the right things. He looks honest. He looks pure. He doesn't have like that alpha male like posturing. But it doesn't excuse the fact that he's complicit. He knows everything. He invites her up, but apologizes and doesn't push her to like come upstairs for a drink. She walks away. He's almost too nice. Like, he'd make a great impression on parents. Like, he actually does make a great impression on Cassie's parents. But he has a past that is so well hidden. His Instagram would proclaim that he's a feminist, um, Black Lives Matter, uh, like, all of that stuff. But at the core of it, his past actions are deplorable. Also, one of my favorite scenes takes place at Cassie's former uh, med school when she goes to talk to Dean Walker, uh, played by Connie Britton. This is so... These are like... um, Connie Britton, I thought... mm, She's probably one of my favorite actresses. Like Every time I see Connie Britton, I'm always sort of impressed by what she does. Uh, I think the last thing I really saw her in was Dirty John, where she was... Well, that story is just like crazy, but... This really, like, highlighted something that 
sort of came to me after I after like I, I sat with this movie for about twelve hours. The way that Cassie interacts or exposes women is completely different from how she exposes men. For men, she wants them to feel shame and fear. But for these women that have hurt her or have hurt Nina, um, she just wants to do this like psychological warfare on them. She wants them to feel fear. Like the fear of you don't know what's happening to your daughter who I've kidnapped and have claimed as like at some like frat house. Like imagine being a mom of a teenager thinking that your daughter was at a frat house. Your teenage daughter was at a frat house. Right, exactly. <laughs> or uh, when Alison Bree's character, I think Maureen or Ma- Madison, I think, thinking that Madison might have been sexually assaulted by this stranger at this restaurant. Um, oh, that she meets like, and then he like, she like wakes up in, in a hotel room. And that's all because she put this plan in motion. Uh, Cassie put this plan in motion. That is fear. Like, you don't know. You wake, you're drunk. Hypothetically, like, let's just say I was drunk. I met this guy. I wake up in a hotel room a few hours later. Who knows what could have happened? And I think that is really um, a nightmare. And I think this is a line that also comes up later in the film about, like, what is your worst nightmare? A woman's worst nightmare is, like, death being killed on a date that's a real fear christopher Mintz-Plasse, uh mclovin from Superbad also shows up is it super bad yeah super bad shows up in this film this scene is like you know he's just he's like a coke addict uh invited this girl over and cassie invited this girl over he's doing lines in front of her he is definitely the most problematic in this movie he reminds me of every boy named Jordan that I went to NYU with. <laughs> Every filmmaker named Jordan just has this... It, ugh, it, it, it rang so true to me. <laughs> As an NYU undergrad, you know, at the dorms, there would always be some guy named Jordan with dark hair trying to, you know, like hook up with some girl, thinking that cocaine would do it, uh, spouting off some, like, nonsense, thinking that he was just so smart and, and with it. And, um, yeah... <laughs> I, it's it it's not supposed to be funny. At least I don't think that's the intent. But I I I just laugh throughout the entire thing. It's 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 hysterical. I think. I don't really understand why Alfred Molina. Uh, I think I think his character is actually him as Jordan. Uh, he plays the attorney. I'm gonna have to watch this scene again. It just seems like he apologizes or he has so much uh, contrition. He's so contrite about his wrongdoing in this court case (laughs) in this trial that he's almost like too much of a good guy where he's just like um i'm really sorry for defending this criminal that um ruined your friend's life to the extent where she probably took her life i i I wasn't 100 percent sure of that it sounds like it was a suicide but it could just be like drugs or whatever i wish he had a larger role i wish he I mean, he does make a very important, like, he, he does make another appearance, like, later on in the movie that's kind of important and, and, and shifts everything. But I wish I had known a little bit more about 
him and his you know inner conflict and i also find it kind of unbelievable that she would uh, cassie would call off the hitman and also if you're the hitman or like the hired thug why are you just like standing outside her car like hide dude hide like you don't want you don't want people to see your face your face is exposed you're leaning on a car uh, people are going to see you it's also important to point out that there's a there's there's a point where Cassie says that she doesn't want a job, she doesn't want kids, she doesn't want a boyfriend. And I feel like all like all of this accumulates into like she's depressed. She is like suffering from depression. She's sort of given up on every day. Um she finds no joy in living life like daily. <laughs> Um, she might be suicidal. She might have some uh, suicidal ideations that are have yet to sort of come out. Or she's just sort of uh, not exposing anyone that doesn't want a job, doesn't want kids, doesn't want a boyfriend. She doesn't really seem to have a reason to live. It's like this hollow emptiness of living. Sure, she goes to work and pours coffee poorly, um, not well. Um, she's, I don't, I mean, she spits in someone's cup of coffee. She ignores customers. So why is she there? And why does Gail Laverne Cox keep her? The nurse stripper costume. We have to talk about this. This was as soon as, I think it's a cello. It, might, it doesn't sound like violins. It might be a cello um, starts the string version of Toxic by Britney Spears. This is probably my favorite segment. But it also led me to like read between the lines and the fact that she like unscrews her license plate, throws it into the woods. I knew for a fact that she's not coming back from this. You don't park your car uh, a significant distance away from the house throw your license plate into the trees, take off your shoes, walk to the house, put on heels to make you look like a stripper to go back to that car. That's not something that people that are going to live through and experience do, I feel. I've watched a lot of Dateline. <laughs> And it just, ha it like left me like this, like uneasy, like, oh, the sense of dread, just knowing that something awful is about to happen at this house, at this bachelor party. I don't know who's going to be the main uh, perpetrator of this crime or violence, but it's, and all of this is happening while you're listening to this extremely beautiful arrangement of Toxic by Britney Spears. I mean, just like when she's walking up, I just like, you're toxic, tongue slipping. It's, you just can't help think that, oh, toxic is like a great fun party song, but this promising young woman's not going to survive this party. Um, uh, one thing that I was a little, I guess, not a fan of, um, these pink Roman numerals for their chapter ends and beginnings. I think at a certain point I was paying more attention to when the next chapter starts and like the chapter ended uh, to really start like investing in the like the narrative of the plot. <laughs> I was just like, oh, when's the next like chapter going to start? When's the next chapter going to end? 
um, and then like it sort of just almost consumed me. And I guess this movie does take place in Ohio. Uh, when she deletes her friender, we see that Al Monroe is from Ohio. So I guess this all happens in Ohio. Sure, okay. And why are her stockings so clean? Like she takes her, she takes off her shoes. She walks a considerable amount of like, like this long distance to this bachelor party, like through like a forest, through, through some trees, woods, uh, a field, whatever, um, over some rocks. But when like we get the close up of her, like when she's dead in bed. Uh, her stockings are, like, so clean. I don't get it. If this movie is a bit much for you, um, I would suggest maybe watching Bad Trip on Netflix afterwards. <laughs> um, I watched Promising Young Woman over the weekend, and then... No, I'm sorry. No, I watched Promising Young Woman twice, like, over a course of, like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then I think on, like, Friday, I had, or maybe Saturday morning, I woke up. All these days are just confusing, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, and then I woke up Saturday morning, and I watched Bad Trip on Netflix. That movie's hilarious. That movie's that movie's better than Borat, Jackass. Um, it's it's you have to see it to believe it. It's it's so good. <laughs> You'll laugh a lot. It took me a few hours. It took me a few days actually. And but I realized what this movie, the feeling this movie left me with, is the same feeling I had after watching Dancer in the Dark. Do you remember that movie? Do you remember that movie, that Bjork movie, uh, Lars von Trier, Dancer in the Dark? She, Catherine Deneuve, uh, and Bjork, and that bad guy, David, David Morse? Um, Dancer in the Dark left me with such, it just left me speechless. Like, it was so tense to, like, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the last scene is, like, Bjork being hung at trial. Oh, that was terrible. And like how you just have to like leave the movie theater after watching that. And you're just like, the music was beautiful. The cinematography was beautiful. The choreography was beautiful. And then like this woman that was trying to save money for her son's like vision problems just ends up being hanged. Oh, it's just so tragic and sad and disappointing. And it's just such a sad movie and I think that's what this left me with I I had no way for my emotions to like handle like what I was feeling like I just had to be like oh wow this movie is really over and the last thing I want to say about this movie is I didn't quite understand the Molly Shannon uh, Cassie like scene it took me a few times to really get it like, the first time I watched it, I, I thought they were, like, literally in two different movies. Um, and then I watched it again, and then I watched it for a third time, and it's... I think it's just badly directed. I think the dialogue speaks volumes, but there's just something about, like, the camera angle or, like, the distance that we don't see, like, the reaction shots from either Cassie or Molly Shannon's character, uh, Nina, who plays Nina's mom. It... It, I feel like it just needs to be reworked because um, the scene is really impactful. It's basically uh, Nina's mom telling Cassie to like get over it because they've all moved on. Like her mom's moved on, her family's moved on. The only person that hasn't moved on is Cassie herself. So yeah, a solid nine out of ten stars, nine out of ten rating. 
Uh, the more I watched it, the more I liked it. I really liked it the second time I watched it, actually. The first time, I think there was just a lot going on. Uh, couldn't quite grasp it. It was also quite late. And I just hated the ending at the first time I watched it. The second time I watched it, the ending makes a little bit more sense. Um, some of the things are highly implausible, of course. Um, but I liked it. So go check out the Dylan Farrow documentary. Go check out Beautiful Thing. I think it was on Amazon, maybe on Hulu. Uh, and last but not least, go check out Promising Young Woman. I'll be back in just a few days with Top Chef. Hey, all you problematics. Thanks for listening. Check me out on Instagram. I can be found at problematicpod. That's problematicpod. And leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Check you next time. Thanks for listening.